Welcome to another episode of Deep Tech Musings. I'm your host Pranajit and I'm very excited about today's topic of discussion which is MLOps, a very hot and trending topic nowadays. A lot of us have heard about DevOps in software development parlance, but with AI and ML taking over the world, there is this new requirement of managing the whole AI life cycle in a way which is quite specific to the new breed of AI ML use cases. And I'm excited to have Shomik with us today. to shed more light on this shomik is an industry veteran of more than 2 decades and a thought leader in this space practicing various flavors of mlops right through his career shomik welcome to the show thanks pranajit so before we jump into mlops and the other exciting things that you are doing it would be good if you can give the audience a brief about your background and how you got involved in ai Sure, Pranajit. So I'm originally from industrial engineering and operations research background. I did my bachelor's in in this area way back in 2000 from IIT Kharagpur. Then I did my master's and PhD also in this area. So as uh, you may be aware, you know, like operations research deals with optimization problems, and optimization problem actually forms the basis of machine learning because at the heart, machine learning actually uh, solves an optimization problem, right? so uh, i have always been interested in the uh, applied side of operations research in various different areas and ml definitely in that sense fits the bill right? right so i started my career after graduation in oracle there i was managing the math engine of a product called oracle crystal ball so we used to do like operate um, more like uh, monte carlo simulation stochastic optimization time series forecasting this type of stuff that's around 2013 that's around the time when you know machine learning was getting pretty popular and there were a lot of application areas that were coming up and i thought that hey why don't why not look into this area it's obviously within the applied domain of or and that's when i had uh, i also at that point of time decided to come back to india and there is this company called 247 that i joined at that time it's a customer support company and they have an ai layer on top of the customer support operations which is where i got into so i got into their data science group where they had this role which is essentially like in the interface of data science and engineering okay and that sort of fit, fitted me perfectly and that's essentially what ml ops is right it's in the interface of data science and hardcore engineering techniques and sort of uh, i have always been interested in this interface between these two spaces so that's how i sort of came into data science and continue to focus in like the ml ops or the engineering aspects of data science got it so that's quite interesting what you bring about operations research as a solid background So even I did my MBA with a major in operations research, and I can relate to where you are coming from, and the stats and math background that we guys get right, definitely right. prepares very well for the roles in modern day AI practitioners. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think you know, like if you look at, for example, your toolbox for problem solving, right? Operations research is definitely a tool, a very important tool, and so is machine learning. Right. And in many cases, these are actually, I would say, orthogonal, in the sense that there are some problems which can be solved by using operations research. Like think about, let's say, a logistics network optimization problem, right? right? And that cannot be solved using machine learning. You have to use operations research techniques only, and maybe you can do solve part of it using machine learning, and then have a like a comprehensive solution. but these are somewhat orthogonal but then at a core of machine learning training 
is a, a solving an optimization problem. So that's also a very interesting linkage right there. Agreed. So I've also seen, as you mentioned, some big machine learning problems which have big models and all. And at the end, they come down to such optimization solutions to get the sensitivity analysis and other endpoint customer impact, so to speak. Right, right. You're right. Yes. Right. That is correct. Great. So now let's dig into MLOps. So it would be great if you can highlight. So what constitutes MLOps or what it is? How should we formally define an MLOps? So MLOps is actually an emerging area. So there has been a little bit of, you know, discussion in the industry about the correct definition. So let's not get into that <laughs> that much. Right. But in my mind, right, I mean, as I was mentioned that this is an area which is in the interface of data science and engineering. So that's actually sort of describes it. So if you think about the industrial ML with data and, you know, you use the data to train a model and then you have to deploy that model and then you have to monitor that model. And if required at some point of time, you have to remodel. So essentially the complete ML modeling lifecycle, right? So the complete ML modeling lifecycle, if you look at it, there are various aspects of the modeling lifecycle, which has got nothing to do with deep learning model or support vector machine model. So they are pure play engineering. And I feel that that's what is MLOps. At its core, it's essentially the engineering aspects of managing the machine learning modeling lifecycle. Got it. So parts of these are like, as I can relate, we have uh, DevOps, which are having some parts of it already similar to this. So why was the need to look at it differently now? And so how has the evolution of MLOps been till now? Right, right. So DevOps, you know, just like MLOps, DevOps has been around for quite some time. Actually, pretty much every mid to large size organization have a pretty strong DevOps team. So in my mind, the difference comes from the fact that when you have to manage machine learning, there are a few other things that comes into picture. So things that are more attuned to the machine learning related literature and the machine learning related understanding. So that is where I feel that MLOps is somewhat different than DevOps. But I have to completely agree that some of the skills definitely is reusable in this domain as well. So essentially, in my mind, that is what is different. There are certain aspects of this uh, operation where the folks have to have reasonable understanding about how a machine learning model works. And, you know, what machine learning modeling lifecycle, what are the intricacies of like how... Uh, how would it be good to monitor a model and so on. So some understanding of this area is what makes it different from the DevOps side. Got it. And when you talk about evolution, uh, Pranajit, that I personally look at it from two different ways, right? So one way is where you are sort of trying to do a few proof of concept modeling, or you, maybe you are just starting small and, you know, you are trying to um, train a model in Python on your laptop. And then, you know, like, just think of a small startup. You have some data, you are training a model in Python, and then uh, you have a model now, you have done some validation, and then now you want to host it. And then you, you the typical solution for the Python uh, region is a Flask-based hosting for Python models, right? With the, um, your model is in pickle file and you just host it using Flask. So that's a reasonably small scale uh, POC type of application, right? right. That's one side. Got it. On the other side, there are these large scale enterprise AI applications 
which obviously you need a scalable solution, a Jewett distributed, highly available, this type of solutions for, you know, like AML model as a service, right? So there you use like, you know, dockerized or containerized hosting of these models and so on and so forth. So these are, you can think of like a, a spectrum and these are two ends of the spectrum and anything in between, right? So that that is the, sort of the evolution in my mind is that how you go from this smaller POC level to this industrial cloud hosted model and so on, right? And that also reflects and that also captures in some sense some of the changing requirements, right? So, you know, we have moved on from simplistic models like, you know, regression-based models to like deep learning models where, where the computational burden is much to, uh, let's say, a simple dot product. Right. Similarly, a lot of time there are other requirements as well, other than the core prediction that is coming out of a model. Right. So there are business rules that has to be mixed and matched with the prediction to get to a final thing that would be useful to the business. So it's not the raw prediction from the model that's useful to the business. Right. So there's this interception with the business rules that comes into picture. And then there are other uh, sort of things. Like, for example, there are a lot of machine learning applications that just run in batch. Versus there are other applications that you can only do in real time. So, for example, you know, fraud detection type of models come in mind where, you know, the real time inferencing is the thing, right? Because you want to catch the fraud when they're happening rather than after the fact, right? So those are some of those paradigms, right? So those require not only the understanding of the model, but also understanding of engineering and how you can do this type of deployment. So that's uh, in some sense, I feel some of the ideas which DevOps, uh, sorry, MLOps look into and can be useful. Got it. So each of those areas you highlighted are uh, having their own set of challenges and it will be good to know. So some of the use cases probably if we take up and help us walk through it as to how MLOps is really getting implemented in each of those use cases that would really connect well with us in understanding this implementation. Sure, sure, Pranjit. So I will probably relate to my experience here. So my experience had spanned a couple of organizations. So we have in 247, for example, which is, as I was mentioning, customer support company, we used to productionize ML models at scale, mostly using Spark for uh, training the ML models. So first, let's go through the, what were the business problems we were trying to solve, right? So in 247, for example, we were trying to solve one different type of models. One of the most important was models for predicting whom to target and when to target when a visitor is on a website for. So let's say you are visiting an e-commerce website and you are browsing through the pages and then you may have noticed sometimes you get this chat invite, right? Saying that, hey, do you need help? Or can I help you with this particular thing? Right. So these are called interventions in this uh, in the industry parlance. Our model was for predicting whom to target because we so, you know, like the chat agents that we have, they're limited in number. So it's a resource constraint there. So we cannot possibly talk to every visitor that comes on a website, especially for the high volume websites. So that's the first problem, whom to target. And then the second problem is when to target in the journey. So we don't want to bombard with invitations to a visitor. So that is the user expectations and user experience also that comes into play. And so when to target is also an important problem to solve. So those are some of the models that we were working with for various enterprise customers that we used to work for in 247. Then there are models for intent prediction in chat utterances. So, you know, towards the later part of my career, I was working on developing chatbots for enterprise use cases. And there you have to predict intent from a chat utterance. So those are also some of the models that we had to productionize. 
Then I had a brief stint in this company in Bangalore, startup in Bangalore called QuickRide. So it's in a shared mobility space. We used to provide basically like car sharing through uh, by uh, within a professional network. So there we were looking at a bunch of different type of ML problems. So for example, one of the models that we worked on is like a ride fraud prediction model, uh, which we had to deploy. So the, so and again, the scale was much different in these two cases. But these are some of the use cases that we wanted to you know solve through and then essentially deployed this type of solutions to the cloud. Got it. There are also a few other, like one other thing that uh, I have done, so that's also part of within the DevOps slash engineering, a scaling of tr- model training, like ML model training. So, you know, like for example, uh, in 247, we used to get huge amount of data from journey data, as they call it, right? Web journey data. And also one of the requirements was how we can scale up training of these ML models. Maybe you can get into a little bit more detail a little later, but that was also one of the uh, ML ops or ML engineering tasks that we did at that point. Got it. So that's quite an elaborate set of use cases that you have uh, worked on. And I'm pretty excited now to dive deeper into them and understand more as to how ML ops was first of all required in the overall AI solution in these use cases? And what was the technical problem it was solving? Right. So we described the business problem so far, right? So when we talk about the technical problems, so there were a couple of technical problems we were trying to solve. One of the technical problems that we were trying to solve is how can we automate the model training without the team having to know too much about the ML ops, you know, like, uh, so as I was mentioning before, we used to use Spark, like we had an enterprise Hadoop cluster and running uh, Spark nodes on that cluster. So like a Hadoop Spark cluster, right? And obviously the jobs used to get scheduled using Yarn and all this kind of stuff, but that's quite a bit of engineering right there, even to start a training job. So we wanted to sort of, you know, like make this streamlined so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. The other part of the other technical problem that we were trying to solve is like we had large number of clients and we wanted to scale up the model, both the model training and model deployment for all these clients, right? And finally, we wanted to also move the model, this modeling lifecycle onto an autopilot type of setting where once a customer has onboarded our platform, the model right from the data preparation to model training to model deployment to monitoring, retraining, all these things can be done on an autopilot uh, setting with some intervention. I'm not necessarily saying that there would be no intervention, but a minimal intervention type of model. So these were some of the technical challenges that we were trying to solve. I could easily see how this would really uh, easy up the life of a data scientist working on developing the solution. So all these challenges that you are trying to overcome through the MLOps implementation is really striking chord with me. And also the fact that these things may be quite prevalent in the news right now, but uh, we must keep in mind that you were tackling these issues around five or six years back or uh, sometime back already. So that's quite good to know. Yes, that is correct. Well, and maybe not that early. This was more of a, yeah, around four or five years back. Yeah, so you are about right. Yeah. Okay. So next, can you just give a brief about some technical details of the solution as to like how we went about this implementation and solving the technical challenges that you mentioned? 
Sure, sure. So maybe we can go through the modeling lifecycle and in the each step. So let's see if we can delve a little deeper and see if we can uh, tease out some of the technical details that we did, right? We started off with essentially uh, like a bad job for creating the feature vectors at scale from the daily raw data. So uh, the idea was that, uh, okay, so maybe we should step back a little bit and just uh, talk a little bit about how the business used to work, right? So once a client onboarded for their customer support operations with 247, so this time I'm talking about the 247 use case. So once a customer onboards the 247 or starts working with 247, we used to get daily web journey data from the customer. That web journey data from the customer was our raw data in some sense, right? So from raw data, we used to use bad job to generate the feature vectors. And those feature vectors were what were used to get used for training the machine learning model. This bad job uh, was essentially used to be a Hadoop uh, MapReduce type of job. We later shifted to Spark jobs, but initial days, it used to be just a Hadoop MapReduce job. The idea was that every night it would run and it would generate the feature vector, which would essentially get stored in a data lake. We experimented with the software called Vertica. Uh, currently, I think it's with HP. So that was what we were using initially for both storing these feature vectors as well as training. Later, we shifted to more of a Hadoop a Spark sort of technology stack. And this uh, raw data, the computed feature vectors used to just get stored in HDFS and we used to access through Hive. So that was the data part. The, um, we had comprehensive data starting from the client solutioning days. So, you know, like we can look back and use, let's say, two months data or three months data for training and so on and so forth. Got it. Once the data is ready, then moving on to the model training side, right? So in the model training, what we wanted to do, as I was mentioning before, we wanted to scale up the model training aspect and also make it sort of seamless for our data analysis team to train these models. So we came up with this um, also what we want to do. So how it used to work in 247 is that Within the data science group, there was this R&D org, which used to work on uh, like different innovative models for solving the business problems that we wanted to solve. And once we have test, tried and tested out some of these models on one or two accounts, then we wanted to deploy these models to multiple accounts with training on their own data, on those the data from the, that account. So that is where this particular stuff that we wanted to work on comes into picture, right? So at that point of time, we wanted to essentially consolidate that saying that, okay, for this particular client in this domain, these are the variables that we feel are necessary and useful. And we would like to develop this model using these variables. So that used to get started back from the feature vector generation itself. So while generating the feature vectors itself, we used to, in, in some sense, encode that understanding and that playbook in some sense, right? And get those feature vectors. And then we used to use this. So we developed a homegrown library on top of Apache Spark for training these ML models. So the novelty of the library was that we actually implemented a bunch of models that are not available in the Spark ML library, okay. what we deemed as necessary for the models that we wanted to train. And also there were a few other sort of interesting additions that we did. This uh, later, uh, towards the beginning of this year, actually, we were able to open source this particular library. It's called FlashML. It's available on GitHub, so within the 247 uh, organization. And very interesting and very comprehensive library. So this is very similar to if you're familiar with this open source library from Salesforce called Transmogrify. That's also another library, very similar in nature, but they look into a few different other aspects of training. We were looking into more like code training. 
Another interesting aspect, I would say, for this library is that in this particular library, using this particular library was completely through a JSON configuration file. So there was no code that needs to be written. So, you know, within a JSON configuration file, you mention the source, you mention the algorithms you want to use, you mention, for example, the CV that you want to run, the score that you want to optimize on, and like, you know, a, a series of things, and then the steps that you want to run, and you submit a Spark job, and the whole training takes place in, let's say, four hours to six hours, or whatever it takes to manage that data. So this is particularly, um, it's now open source uh, for quite some time. So I would invite the listeners to to sort of check it out. That's fantastic. I could really see the experiment SL going down a lot with such an uh, library. Exactly. Exactly. Completely agree. So the, the idea was to free up time for, you know, doing the, inno- the innovative, uh, working on the innovative models rather than, you know, like when we know that this is the model that we want to onboard for a client, why bother with, you know, writing code and um, doing it? Just, uh, you know, set up a config file, send it to the service and you are all set. Got it. This training service. And this training service is actually the next part of the innovation is this training. Um, it was a microservice architecture for triggering a training job and then monitoring this training job through a Elk stack. Elk stack is essentially Elasticsearch uh, Kibana um, stack, right? right? So it used to uh, it, it used to send messages to the Elasticsearch service and then you can query or monitor using Kibana. And then once the training job is done, you basically get a series of... Uh, I would say serialized models in Hadoop, in HDFS, which can then be, uh, which is basically deploy ready serialized models. So I think we touch about certain technical terms like a microservice and a ELK stack. So uh, can you just help explain in uh, one line, maybe for those who are not completely aware of these aspects? Sure. Yeah. So microservice is essentially um, a series of API calls, uh, like URLs, right? Um, a series of API calls that can be called by a user to trigger a training job. And we actually did it both ways. Uh, So one way we did was to provide with this URLs, which can be used to trigger a training job. It is also possible, it was also possible to, we also came up with like a command line interface, like a CLI driven solution to trigger the same training job. So there were two interfaces to access this system. So an user would essentially create the config JSON file and then send that uh, config JSON file using one of these uh, microservice URL. And that would start the training job. And as you said, it can be a combination of multiple APIs or it can be, we can also, sometimes what we do is we expose an API just to create a certain feature data versioning or a cross-validated model. So it can be a mix of multiple such uh, smaller units or it can be individual units as well. Right. So it can be, this can be done in various different ways, as you correctly pointed out. What we were doing was, this was a series of APIs that were mostly related to the modeling lifecycle. So it was not necessarily on specific aspects, like for example, CV. So those aspects were taken care of in the config file itself. So the config file had all those details. So for example, you want to switch from, let's say, logistic regression to SVM, that would be mentioned in the config file. So you just create a new config file and use the same API. But there were a series of APIs for, you know, starting the training, monitoring the job, stopping training. You figure out, hey, there was some mistake. I want to just uh, stop it right away. You know, so stopping the job or, you know, a various type of sort of interaction with the job itself. Okay. These were essentially the the APIs here. Okay. And just to finish the thread here. So Elk Stack, as I was mentioning, it, it is basically comprising of two or three software together. 
So the main two uh, things are um, Elasticsearch and Kibana. So these are both open source software. For essentially, uh, Elasticsearch is a software for uh, high speed, high accuracy text indexing, right. right? And Kibana is more like a like a dashboard type of solution. Yeah. So they together work very well, and that's why it's called a stack, so to speak, right. right? They sort of together work very well and can be used for this type of purposes where you are getting lot of uh, how do I put this? Lot of uh, input text logs and those logs needs to be sort of visualized in a dashboard user so that's where that's where elk yes user so i believe the uh, data scientist or a developer can uh, track his experiments and other aspects of the job that is correct through that uh, elk dashboard right that is correct and the expectation was that the users can uh, essentially interact with the system with this uh, dashboard see if there are any errors it would show up on that screen because you know these are apis right so you don't have access to a right. like console where you know your error message will be seen right so that error message shows up in the elastic search uh, dashboard right. and then you can uh, take some corrective actions and stuff like in that. fact that is a very important point you touch upon yeah. so debugging in a kind of an environment which is very automated that is a challenge which i think at least i have seen in various such automated or like uh, handling life cycle management tools and so the listeners might be someone who is exposed might be able to relate as well so it's not quite same way as we do in our local or a cloud based or a vm or a machine as well so that is why we need this reporting not at all not at all reporting yes. dashboards and some other tweaks in the code so that we log certain aspects or we log certain things that we want to track which will show up in these dashboards while the training job completely agree so as much detail as possible what is happening in the spark job right so we used to push that all these logs to the elk stack so that the users can monitor progress of the training job and so on correct right? yeah absolutely great so moving on once we had those model uh, serialized model files then we used to deploy those models for inferencing service right so this was a homegrown sort of a jvm stack based solution that we used one of the novelty of that stack was that we used to incorporate both business rules and models together in sort of a direct acyclic graph like a dag so you can think about let's say there are two or three models let's say take for example the problem that we were solving like when to target or whom to target let's say we uh, whom to target right so there is this large number of visitors that are on the website and we want to target a few of them and provide the chat invite the intervention so there might be there are business rules that every company used to provide to us saying that hey uh, you know you cannot if, if this person is with in this category then you cannot target or if this person is in this category you have to target you do not need a model you have to uh, show an invite etc right so there are these cases where you know you have to sort of uh, override let's say the model output the raw model output right and that's what this system was doing so it was it's it's a dag of uh, model nodes and then business rule nodes and working together to give that final prediction in some sense okay right and um, so this models uh, and this uh, rules were written in javascript and that's what we were using later we experimented with uh, using mlib there is this format called mlib right. uh, it's an open source format for serializing the spark models and that was also a, a pretty good experience and that's something that we experimented only for the model nodes uh, as i was mentioned right there was another thing that was uh, interesting here is that we were hosting multiple models for multiple clients within the same system 
right? So because these models were very small, you know, like for example, think about let's say a logistic regression model or an SVM model. So at that point of time, see, these particular problems did not need a deep learning solution or any of those hardcore models, right? These were simple, uh, reasonably simple, but effective models. And there were a lot of those models. So we were hosting them together in a fail-safe manner rather than having like, you know, a dockerized version for one model, because that would have been an overkill for us in that sense. Got it. Got it. And so I, the customization that you're bringing in, I would suppose that is why we need this sort of homegrown stack instead of an existing solution from a big box provider, perhaps. I agree. That's exactly true. I mean, it's not that there were no solutions at the time. There were solutions. Mm-hmm. But since we wanted to do it in a different way than what traditional cloud providers provide at that point of time or even now, so we actually did it ourselves. Got it. And how did you go about monitoring uh, the aspects of the training? So for monitoring, so they're doing monitoring in a couple of different ways. Uh, so one of the ways uh, we used to, uh, there were some statistical measures that we used to use for model monitoring. For example, there are these concepts from, from the credit rating industry called uh, population sensitivity index and variable stability index and, sorry, population stability index and variable stability index and this kind of metrics. So essentially it measures whether the population on which the model is being run, right? Whether that population characteristics are still the same as when the model was trained. And then there are a few other uh, type of metrics as well. But uh, so those are essentially the model uh, type, model metrics. Then there are business metrics. So for example, we were in customer support operations. So there were a few customer support uh, business metrics that we had to be responsible for. And so the monitoring was a combination of this. So we were able to sort of achieve, I would say, balance between, it wasn't, the retraining was not triggered only by model metrics. It was a balance between looking at the model metrics as well as the business metrics and then decide whether a retraining is required or not. So these model metrics that you have mentioned, I think uh, they refer to the ways the data on which the model was finally trained on differs from what the model is currently predicting on vis-a-vis also how the model predictions themselves are changing. Yes, yes. Right? So the drift in data as well as the model. That is correct. Yes, you are very right. And uh, that's a very important point also you made about business metrics. So often we overlook that and focus completely on the model and how good a model is we often strive for the high precision or high accuracy and while communicating to the business that means uh, a lot less to them than what it means to a data scientist so completely agree completely yeah so that's a very important point uh, you made there yes yes so we have seen in practice also what used to happen so we actually so this is funny right so we wrote this infrastructure saying that hey you know if this model parameter crosses certain threshold we will trigger a retraining and we switched it on for a couple of clients and then we heard from the business side of our data science group, like the, the analysts who are actually responsible for the model saying that, no, no, this is this is fine. We don't need a retraining at this moment, right? Because their business metric was doing fine. So they didn't want to sort of disturb the status quo or the steady state of running the business. So we sort of moved a step back and said that, okay, let's take the business metric, the front seat, so to speak, right? And maybe make the model metrics a little less prominent and use that for taking this type of decisions. Got it. 
So next, how did you go about the use case that you highlighted about quick write? So uh, can you shed some more uh, light on the technical details of that? Yes. So quick write was uh, that's right. Quick write was a pretty small stream. There I was managing both the data science and the data infrastructure side of things. We were essentially using a microservice-based architecture there as well, but there uh, the models were being developed in Python, and uh, we initially used to prototype them using the Flask um, runtime itself. Uh, for hosting those type of models. And when we were reasonably happy, we started using this uh, another uh, framework called GUnicorn, which is essentially um, a slightly more scalable and uh, stronger version of, for uh, for hosting microservices in Python. So this whole platform was Python-based uh, and so on. So again, there also we were hosting multiple small models in the same Unicorn series. And that used to work for us for a couple of reasons. One reason was that the sum of this model wasn't that high volume. Uh, it was relatively low volume. And then it also used to basically consolidate the maintenance of this type of system and this type of architecture. Got it. So uh, what were the major challenges that we faced while going about uh, developing these MLOps solutions? Yeah, some of the interesting things that we noticed while we were developing these systems, both in 247 AI and also in QuickRide as well. So one uh, in, uh, thing is that coming up with more of like a modular architecture for the system. So by modular, I mean that as you can see, right, like the if you want to support the complete modeling lifecycle, starting from that, you know, data preparation to all the way to monitoring and retraining, these are different but dependent in some sense, right? So how can you modularize this? So the way to go for us was to use uh, like a microservice type of architecture. Essentially, it's a collection of APIs that we used to use for this type of purpose. Uh, there was another very interesting technical challenge. So we were using Spark at that point of time for training these ML models. But later, there were other problems that were more suitable for, you know, like deep learning was more suitable, or maybe some other type of models were more suitable for solving those type of models. So in general, data scientists work in a heterogeneous model training paradigm. For example, some folks might use ParkML, some folks might use Scikit-learn, some folks might use TensorFlow, and so on and so forth. So now what happens is that you want to host all these type of models, right? Each hosting, each type of model uses a different type of technology stack. It's not the same technology stack for each type of model. So how do you deal with it? So again, microservice architecture can come to the rescue. And essentially, that's what we did. We actually went even one step further. And you can think of, for example, let's say some part of your transformations, right? So that might be, uh, you know, running in Spark. And then, you know, once it is, so in Spark, maybe in one model, we were doing the complete pipeline was defined in Spark. So starting from raw data to trans series of transformations to ML to deployment ready code, right? In some cases, we were using data to Spark for using some of the transformations, but then after that, we were sending that uh, transformed uh, feature vector to scikit-learn or maybe even TensorFlow, okay. right? And doing a TensorFlow model. It was a kind of an interest. And again, all of these were being done using Microsoft Zagreb. So uh, let me be um, uh, sort of forthcoming here. So this was something that we were experimenting with. We didn't really deploy the solution, but it was theoretically possible to do some of this type of pretty novel mix and match type of thing. Got it. And uh, lastly, so what was the outcome and impact of the implementations that you have done at these organizations around the ML of solutions, which you just highlighted? Sure. So we saw quite a few measurable impacts from this type of the work that we did over there. 
So one of the way that it helped uh, the organization is that the model training could now include like the complete data set instead of the sample. So traditionally what used to happen is that the data scientists would, so it has always been a big data sort of use case, right? right? There are huge volumes of data that flows through the system every night, but you cannot possibly use all that data in your laptop to train a model when you are using, let's say, a software like R. Right. So the data scientist would essentially take a sample of the data set and then train a model. What we essentially moved to is to use the complete data set for training these models. And that resulted in a stronger, more robust model, uh, which was also good for the business. The other one was that the model training can, as this we were mentioning before, the model training can now be performed at scale while incorporating some of the best practices that we want to incorporate from, let's say, R&D. Right. So that frees up time for the folks to do more research in the model itself instead of, you know, like being busy in training models day in and day out with no not much innovation in that. So it actually frees up that time. So that is essentially the two measurable impact. The other important one was that initially what used to happen is that the model deployment, there was this, uh, you know, and it's common in many, many other organizations as well, is that the paradigm is that the data scientist trains the model and then sort of throws it over to the engineering team for deployment, right? So, and that goes into a deployment queue in the engineering uh, side and then takes maybe a couple of weeks to deploy a model. Right? And we have seen that in 247 and other organizations as well. And that was one of the things that we did, that using this uh, infrastructure, this complete lifecycle management platform, is the deployment essentially were reduced from weeks to hours. Right, So once the model is trained and the deployment-ready codes are available, it's very fast to deploy the model at that point. So I'm sure the data scientists at 247 must have really utilized this solution and been really happy about it going about their day-to-day job yes, yes. with such benefits that you have highlighted yes it was quite appreciated right and it's great for us to learn about how the mlops we have all heard about some overall aspects and all but it's good to get into the technical details also of it and understand how they tie back to the analytical use cases that you highlighted great so i'd like to change gears now and I'm sure you must have uh, got audiences excited about MLOps. So what would be your advice to uh, data scientists on how they should go about, you know, upskilling themselves around MLOps? Right. That's a very good question, Pranajit. So as I was mentioning, right, so there is often this mindset from the data science side is to train a model and then throw it over the wall for deployment. Right. And that can be a cause for failure in quite a few cases because there might be a mismatch between how the model is trained versus how the model is deployed. Like, for example, I have seen in my experience, right, some of the transformations that were done for training the model were not getting replicated properly when the model was deployed. So as you can imagine, the model output was not very robust in in those cases, right? Right. So it's important that data scientists also understand and sort of maybe partner with ML engineering or MLOps early on to make sure what are the technical constraints for deploying a, a model. So that would essentially limit some of the frustration maybe from the data scientists that, hey, I worked on this novel model, but it never saw the light of the day. and It never got used by the business. And one of the major reasons is that there are technical constraints that cannot be surmounted for every model. And so that's why it's important to early on to focus on them. 
even better maybe uh, you know like i personally feel that data scientist has to be somewhat comfortable with let's say poc type of model deployments right especially this is important for the ones who are so called lone practitioners right lone practitioners are maybe there are like one or two you know maybe you are working in a startup and you are the only data scientist in the organization or maybe there are one or two data scientists in the organization and there aren't so called ml ops team Right. Right. And again, being as in a startup, you are probably not looking at, let's say, you know, you are not looking at surfing millions of uh, prediction requests every hour. So that's probably not where you are right now. Right. Otherwise, there would be an MLOps team to take care of that. So, and in this type of cases, it's important that you are able to even deploy some small models. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to learn all the tricks of the trade for MLOps, but it definitely helps to get that feeling that okay, this is. what it means to deploy a model in production and get it used for let's say either batch inferencing or real time inferencing and that can make you a bit more cognizant and taking those decisions when you are working on specific data science projects i completely agree with you i think much of it also goes back to how majority of us learn data science right now so it's mostly been till the point of where you are making some analysis and just communicating it or it's like a kaggle kind of an aspect wherein the early data scientists just they do analysis and go for those metrics and all agree, but agree. data science in organizations and in big organizations is much more beyond that yes so as you rightly pointed that deployment aspect the monitoring aspects those things is what i think everyone now needs to open their minds to completely agree I also wanted to mention one more thing that MLOps is also a very good career decision as well, and it's a bit different from the data science. But if someone thinks that, see, uh, first of all, engineering is the background for most of this and this uh, type of careers, right? The data science or MLOps. Right. However, there are people who are, uh, you know, they love uh, coding slash engineering a little bit more than maybe uh, working with numbers, right? Right. So if one feels that that is what describes you, right, that you are a little bit more intrigued by the engineering aspect of it. you know comfortable enough with uh, let's say logistic regression model or you know like the usual understanding of ml you have the usual understanding of ml but you are a little bit more intrigued little bit more interested in the engineering aspect of it so then mlops actually becomes a perfect career choice for a lot of people who are working in this and you can um, you know this interface of engineering and ml and data science is very interesting because you get to see the advancement on both sides right and can be very eye opening also in certain cases that's a very valuable point which you make that definitely i certainly feel so that mlops probably would come out as a career opportunity as well in especially in uh, big problems and big organizations wherein this may be a specialty yes and yes. we will ha- need some special as you rightly pointed out the skill set at the interface of engineering and science that's correct and that really augurs well for a lot of new people who may want to look that way agreed completely agree so where can one then start learning about these aspects right so there are couple of um, sources that i can mention in general an engineering knack is obviously the starting point right then so there are now courses in all these major platforms for example coursera or edx or um, you know whatever the other online uh, there are courses now on data engineering or data infrastructure uh, this, so those courses are all quite good right 
those courses are definitely something that i would recommend beyond those courses there are podcasts or blog posts or conferences mm-hmm. that also are very important to keep in touch with to understand where the industry is going in this area like so for example podcast so o'reilly has or used to have this in a very nice podcast called data show hosted by um, ben lorica yeah. um, and i used to yes immensely enjoy the podcast that used to come there similarly there is this uh, podcast uh, called twiml um, i am forgetting what is the full form of that podcast but uh, it's hosted by sam charrington uh, that this week in machine learning this week in machine learning yes that's correct so you know and that's also covers a gamut of uh, both advances in aiml and also advances and some novel understanding in um in the data engineering ml ops side right and you know for example podcast like chronology our podcast right here also Definitely. i you have discussed that you intend to cover both these aspects so i think some of this aspect uh, some of these things like you know so this podcast actually present a good opportunity because here you get to hear the practical aspects of an aiml model you do not necessarily are going all the way down to let's say the mathematical model so you get to understand model at an abstract level and then see what the technicalities are coming into so these are all very good resources right. similarly on the blog right. post front right so there is this guy um, his name is jc anderson i have really liked his posts some of his posts are on oreilly he has also his own website he has a very good notion on data engineering and ml ops type of topics right then there are conferences on data engineering ml ops for example spark ai or strata from oreilly these are all very good conferences and a lot of talks quite a few like for example spark ai all the talks are available on youtube and i would definitely recommend many of these talks for understanding on ml ops various areas related to ml got it i would get back to the point you made about the lone practitioners i think the most of us would probably start in every new skill set in that way and i think in that aspect it is important to make implementations so we may think that ml ops is something like which only the big organizations or big systems can be had at but we can even start small in the implementation in terms of making apis of your code right so it's not that just yes, uh, yes. we do analysis and uh, that's it so go ahead and make an api out of your code or in fact even better go ahead and make your code open source and publish it as a pypy package so that others can you have installed yes absolutely pip install for all such a lot of uh, packages why not make your own code as a package so those can be some small starting points absolutely right. so there are a lot quite a bit now uh, you know with the um, internet is is the time which is a constraint right? Right. because if if you want to learn this thing there are a lot of resources available on the internet yes agree okay great so and lastly i would like to get your view on how you see mlops developing and shaping the industry in the next 3 to 5 years sure uh, pranajit so there are two distinct paths that i see right now so there are this ui driven cloud based solutions by major cloud providers and other software vendors as well right where this train deploy monitor retrain all this happens through point and click interfaces and they're pretty powerful you know and if you are anyway within one of these clouds then obviously it makes sense to look into this and look into this type of systems and see whether it makes sense for you to use them right so this is one distinct path that is evolving and where you know ml ops in some sense is taken care of by the cloud provider themselves right 
Then there are DIY solutions, right? Do-it-yourself uh, type of solutions that are rolled out by data engineers and ML engineers. So there are examples like that. So for example, some of the open source that I was mentioning before, like libraries like Transmogrify from Salesforce, or you know the FlashML library from 247 AI that I was mentioning. Some of these are open source, some of these are closed source. For example, there is this platform called Michelangelo in Uber that is closed source. Then there is this startup called Data IQ. So there are quite a few of them which are similar, like, you know, there are do-it-yourself type of solutions that can be rolled up. Each one has its own pros and cons. So, you know, it, it so for example, the DIY solution can take time to fine-tune, but can provide, you know, the specific or the customized solution that is required for the organization and can also result in a major cost savings, frankly, right? Right. So for small-sized companies, uh, small-sized organizations, startups who have like skeletal DS stuff, data science stuff or skeletal MLOps stuff, or, you know, companies which do not have the AI solution itself as their core business. It's just that AI solution can help them in the business, but that is not the core business itself. In those cases, it's quite possible to onboard some of these cloud solutions as an entry point and then see how it works, right? And that can help them take a decision to move one way or the other, right? So some of these automations can also help, uh, as I was mentioning, right, freeing up time and then providing more opportunities for ML engineers to work on this type of uh, aspects. Great. So I think, Samik, you have got us really excited about this new aspect of MLOps. And uh, we certainly feel more informed taking on the future with this new wave of MLOps coming in the AI uh, world. And uh, we certainly know now how to go about tackling this aspect and uh, be more better prepared to take on the challenges that we have and also benefit from it as you have also highlighted the major benefits in it. Right. So anyone looking to learn more about MLOps, do look into the resources which Samik has highlighted and also feel free to reach out to Samik on LinkedIn. His profile link will be there in the show notes. I'm sure Shamir will be very helpful in your journey towards MLOps as well. Agreed, agreed. Yes. Right. So, Shamik, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks for taking out time today for us. And I look forward to the next time when we discuss on some other insightful topic and exciting stuff that you have been working on. Absolutely. Thank you, Pranjit, for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. Great. I hope it was helpful to the audience. Definitely. Thanks. I'm not afraid of